This is part two of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. The question number four is what are some of your favorite plants to include in a polyculture planting? And and I think it's kind of funny because isn't, isn't her question kind of loaded? You know? Yeah, she she suggested rhubarb, comfrey, sunchokes, etc. So rhubarb and comfrey uh, would be like at the tippy top of my guild list. But the other thing is, is I kind of... I a lot of me kind of thinks like, um, well, what even grows? What's and then on top of that, I want to make things. Oops, I gotta I gotta drive here for a sec. Yeah, you go ahead and drive. I think um, of course we're looking at more perennials. We really really like the perennials, and I tend to focus a lot on herbs, both culinary herbs and medicinal herbs, and I'm I'm very happy more of those are going. Um, uh, but I, I, we're trying to do strawberries, and I like asparagus. I have some asparagus plants that are happy. I think a, a big part of what I'm trying to do is to make diversity in the soil. And so I want to have places that have high pH, low pH. Some spots are drier, some spots are wetter. And so I'm trying to have all this diversity in the soil and then scatter the seeds willy-nilly everywhere and then see who takes. So, and then when it comes, so I, it's not so much like I'm trying to make a, a guild. Here's an apple tree. Here's the guild. I'm, I'm kind of like trying to experiment to, to learn rather than booking up about guilds, which, you know, Gaia's Garden is like the book we all turn to to learn about the apple tree guild. It's got such a great example there. Um, but uh, more, more well, and then the other thing is, of course, you know, black walnut is a great one where you kind of need to know the guild plants because so few things will uh, be able to tolerate the jug loans coming from the black walnut. But, but even more than that, it's like I've tried to introduce so much diversity in the soil that if I've got an apple tree thriving in a spot, then um, what's going to grow next to it might depend on what the soil is like just six feet away. It might be really different, and different kinds of plants will thrive with that. Now, that said, um, I, I I do like the uh, the comfrey and the rhubarb. Um, sunchokes, I don't really think of sunchokes so much as a guild plant as much as a... Wherever it's going to be really dry, I'm going to plant sunchokes because they'll tolerate it, <laughs> especially at the top of something where I don't go up there very often. And, um, and it'll always provide plenty of food kind of a thing. Um, but I think diversity in the food forest itself, and in fact, I kind of wonder if I want to move away from the the phrase food forest and and maybe even go on to food woodland or maybe something else because there's so many weird things that people have started to think that food forest means but i i do think that um it's good to have diversity in the trees that you have and so don't plant a bunch of apple trees together which is something 
that I don't think is mentioned often enough is that when you're trying to, people are talking about guilds and it's kind of like, well, don't plant an apple tree right next to another apple tree. Um, um, instead, you know, make the next apple tree be at least, uh, um, I don't know, 40 feet away or something like that. Uh, the, otherwise, you, these two trees might contribute to each other getting sick. Um, on top of that, uh, an apple tree is going to have certain needs of the soil, and it's going to produce a certain kind of waste or exudate. And, and the exudate from an apple tree is going to be golden, delicious goodness to a variety of other plants that are not apple trees. Whereas um, if you got another apple tree right next to it, it's like, hey, quit, quit pooping on my food, man. <laughs> you know? So it's like the way that you solve that problem is through diversity. So when we talk about guilds, I, I guess I'm kind of thinking a lot about like, have have more diversity in fact we want to talk about guilds i love the idea of like let's do more and more guilds and let's have like recipes for guilds and things like that but i kind of feel like the guild recipe is going to be really difficult to match based upon uh a different you know soil diversity if i do a good job at making diverse soils the guild is going to, i'm not going to be able to use any guild recipe other than one that i come up with on my own well, and, and we're still learning. We're still observing. I, I'm, a common permaculture adage is to, oh, don't do anything for a year. Just observe for a year. And really, a year isn't long enough, and it's usually too long for most people. It's it's it's, yeah. it's, it's both. It's too long, and it's not long enough. Yeah, because we are still learning. The seasons have been different almost every year in Montana. You know, we've had some dry springs. We've had some wet springs. We've had some drought times. We've had a lot of snow or kind of more normal low snow you know we we we've had a lot of variances in just a few short years so we're learning about it we're still building soil and we're still encouraging a lot of soil building plants that would be considered pests in regions with more water so it's it's just very very different like julia winter visited us and we had cleavers growing over the rocks right next to our porch steps and it was an awesome big mound of green stuff and she's like oh that's a pest in portland and you know but here in montana this awesome huge green mound of cleavers died out when the summer heat hit and it was gone and i was kind of like oh bummer you know because we were getting green around our porch steps over rocks uh so what we leave a lot of things in the soil to help build our soil that might be considered pests other places we have lots of dandelions lots of lambs quarters the chenopodium album we have lots of mustards lots of penny cress uh, we've been planting more and more clover. We have alfalfa and sweet clover. And, and these are all the things we're encouraging and chopping and dropping as we're building soil. Um, and we're trying to plant more and more perennial. We have some berry bushes. We have some small fruit trees. We have um, 
rhubarb. We have lots of comfrey. Um, we're trying to get a lot of these different things established. So we don't have a fixed, oh, this is this is our guild and this is what we do. I like the mints. <laughs> Paul is not as fond of them. Um, uh, I've had some mints and herbs die out in the Montana winters. Uh, and and so some of them I've overwintered in the house, partly successfully, partly not. But I'm getting herbs to overwinter in the ground now because we've improved the soil enough and and protected them enough just with snow cover in the winter that they make it through. So these, I don't know, that that's my point of view about a bunch of the plants. I, th- I think another important thing is, is that the guild that you're going to have for the first year is going to be very different from what you want on the third year, which is going to be very different from what you want on the fifth year, which is going to be very different from what you want on the seventh year and beyond. Um, when you're when you're first like right now, I think a lot of the stuff that we're growing on our hugelkultur beds are about building soil and and getting getting to the point that we can have something here without irrigation. And and a lot of it is is that I want to put a lot of these plants through boot camp um, where they don't get irrigation and and so they. Uh, congratulations! You survived without any irrigation uh, last year, and so that's going to be your. So you're a keeper, and so um, on the other hand, I might introduce something that I know is not going to survive through uh, the uh, through the summer, and but I'm going to I'm going to plant it anyway because it's going to build soil. I want it to grow and then uh, die, and it's possible it might even fruit before it dies. So I think I think we've covered a lot of things about plants and polyculture. Um, we don't, you know, we're not scripting, and we're we're kind of still more in the good luck you're on your own kind of phase instead of oh we're going to make sure this guild with these five plants grows exactly how we want it to. Here's a good one. Um, rather than saying like, okay, what's the best guild for an apple tree? Um, I kind of I kind of feel like I would prefer to say, hey, why don't you have a full acre? Go out and have 20 apple trees and plant a hundred different things just mixed under all of them. And say, good luck, you're on your own. You know, and then whatever takes, takes. Whatever doesn't, doesn't. And then uh, and then each year you try to improve it a little bit more wherever things didn't work out. I would much rather do that than, like, be trying to meticulously say, like, okay, here's, here's a plant that I decided is going to be in this guild and it looks sad. So I'm going to devote hours of my life to trying to make it work in a place where it's obviously not working yeah i i think this year was one of the first years we've had uh so much growing and that we have a a huge abundance of material for chopping and dropping to mulch things oh the chop and drop i mean if you're a gardener it's like I'm so used to, like, I have to go buy mulch or I'm going to make compost or all this work from long ago and in order to feed my needs to garden. And now, 
now it's like there's just these enormous plants that are growing that are like saying, please chop and drop me. All grasses, they're all saying, please chop and drop me, please. Comfrey. Comfrey is like, if if you don't chop and drop it, when it gets to be five feet tall, it will flop over into the path and say, look at me. Look at me. Look at look at me. <laughs> so this is yeah. what you got to use. Yeah. So um, chop and drop is the best. Oh, just just mulching paradise. Then you go and you're like, oh, look, here's a little peach tree. Remember that little peach tree that's way out in the back? It's only like six inches tall, maybe eight inches tall, something like that. And it's like, oh, I just love to go and chop and drop and give to that little peach tree. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been amazed at how easily you can mulch out the grasses that you don't want around the plants if you do a heavy enough chop and drop. So so I'm learning. I'm learning how to work with a bigger system as we have around base camp and with more chop and drop. Um, it's been awesome. Anyway, that's a little bit different aspect to what our favorite plants are in a polyculture planning. But I think we've we're ready for the next question. Yeah? Bring on the next question. Uh, number five. How can bugs be good? I think that uh, if we're going to say bugs, let's just include all insects. And I think a, a famous one is the yellow jacket. Uh, people do everything they can to fight off the yellow jacket. And there was a time when I have done some bizarre things to fight off yellow jackets. Um, and I think I've already put those in a podcast where I tried to make a barrel to harvest billions of yellow jackets so I can feed them to chickens yeah. over the winter. Yeah. But one of the things, the yellow jacket, however, I've since learned, and, and we are really embracing them this year, uh, is is a uh, broad-spectrum uh, omnivore. And um, I, I'm not sure, but I think we may have put it in the podcast, but it's like, uh, I, an earwig uh, was on a project we were working on, and it got out. Um, we were chopping, we were doing, we were doing some roundwood timber framing, and look, there's an earwig. And then along came a yellow jacket and grabbed it, and just started going chomp, 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 munch, 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 and eating it up. And so it's like, uh, but I was kind of a, at one point in time, I was a little worried. It's like, wow. Our, our gardens are just a jungle this year. There's so much growing where there wasn't anything growing before. Thank the cat, this your your new BFF. Yeah. I'm now second place to this cat. <laughs> no. um, but it's kind of like, well, the cat obviously isn't going to eat the little insects that are going to eat all of these plants. And so I was kind of thinking like, wow, we really got to get chickens in here soon to start eating these bugs. And uh, then, you know, we've had a lot of yellow jackets, and I've noticed the yellow jackets eating all the bugs. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tried to show the cat to go after a grasshopper or a cricket. She she wasn't interested. So there is, there's, there's all kinds of beneficial bugs. I mean, you know, should we start listing off ladybugs and um, uh, aphid lions and, uh, um, which is just the larval form of a ladybug? <laughs> Um, but I mean, like, there's there's tons and tons of, of beneficial insects, a lot of them being the pollinators we were talking about earlier. If we didn't have the pollinators, there's a lot of stuff that would not do well. We, there's a lot of fruit we wouldn't have. There would, would be a lot of propagation that wouldn't exist. There wouldn't be seeds. 
So um, uh, when it comes to bugs, there's just a long, long list of beneficials. And when you've got more diversity in bugs, when you start having monocrops and you start like eliminating the brush piles and things like that, you start making a tidy, tidy, tidy garden, then the bugs start to become a problem and a pest. Well, and that's the case, too. If a plant is sad in an area, quite often the bugs will come in to finish the job, you know, finish off that plant that's kind of sad. So it's it's nature's way of recycling and, and using everything. But, but plants that are healthier uh, in their system are usually more resilient to bugs and and might not be all covered in aphids, you know. Bugs are an agent of nature. And if we're trying to embrace nature, we need to also embrace the bugs. And when there's balance, the gardener benefits. Um, I, I think a great example, maybe and maybe Amy was fishing for this story, is the Colorado potato beetle story. When you do a a monocrop of, of potatoes and you see Colorado potato beetles show up, then of course the conventional grower is going to start to spray insecticides. Um, so that way the potatoes will grow without being chomped on by the Colorado potato beetle. And then the organic farmer is going to uh, do all kinds of things that are going to basically be to kill the Colorado potato beetle but with OMRI certified poisons or techniques. Um, a lot of times they'll just smash them. Like, let's get uh, 100 people out there and just start smashing Colorado potato beetles. But with a permaculture system, then what you're going to do is, is you're going to plant all your potatoes in a very diverse environment. Every, every potato is growing in a different part of your garden surrounded by a bunch of different plants that are all uh, uh, supporting those potatoes. And so uh, if you've got a potato plant that's got Colorado potato beetles on it, it's like, well, I guess that potato plant is going to die. It shouldn't have been there. That, that part of the garden turned out to not be a good potato fit. In the meantime, you go to other parts of your garden, and the potatoes are doing great, and they're untouched by Colorado potato beetles. And they will be. They will, they will continue to the very end without a Colorado potato beetle problem. Yeah, yeah I think... Um, I think the more plant diversity you get, the more uh, bug diversity you get. And that's what we want. We want the je- yellow jackets to keep the earwigs in check and, you know, so many different um, beneficials versus others. Uh, we just want that diversity because that creates the healthiest ecosystem. Uh, keep the grasshoppers and crickets in check. You know, all the things that want to chomp on our growies, the yellow jackets are out there eating them. Yeah. We, where you lived before, where you were uh, collecting and drying the yellow jackets and training your chickens to eat them, the yellow jackets were introduced into these uh, timberlands to try and control um, the the pine beetles or the, the bugs that were... Um, affecting the timber, so so it it could be in some areas that excessive yellow jackets have been introduced for those kind of controls, but but that we um, you know the more diverse your own ecosystem gets, I think that starts bringing that stuff back into balance. Right, and I think I think that's a, a point that 
Sepp Holzer makes, that Tim Barker makes, and so many different people make, and that is that, uh, like, if you do a lot of mulch, a lot of people are worried, like, oh, I do a lot of mulch, I'm going to bring in a lot of slugs, and I'm going to bring in a lot of this and a lot of that, and we had our problems with, with rabbits and uh, chipmunks, and predators started to show up. I mean, that's kind of the thing. Balance does eventually arrive. And, and I think a big part of permaculture is about uh, being patient and, and, and being allowing nature to do her thing and keep in mind that those chipmunks and uh, the rabbits and the deer and the turkeys, those are all agents of nature. Um, at the same time, I, I kind of can't help but think that I can't do anything <laughs> to, to um, have, a, have a perfectly symbiotic relationship with deer. Otherwise, I'm just providing a, a deer oasis. They're kind of like um, uh, uh, like tall rats. <laughs> well, the Ponder family, Cliff Ponder, he wanted to plant a deer garden. Do you remember him talking about that? Uh, maybe a lot of people. Yeah, where you harvest venison. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he wanted just a deer garden. But um, so I, I, I hope we got at what Amy was looking for and how bugs can be good. The last question, I made a big list for us to cover this question because it's a pretty big one. Number six, if someone doesn't own land and can't implement big projects, what do you recommend they do? Do small steps make a difference? I, okay. Um, I know that we took a moment and we made a little bit of a list for this from just, you know, from memory and whatnot. And the, answer, the, the short answer is yes. Uh, but, but it's like, can, can small steps make a difference? And I mean, like, I kind of feel like that's all of permaculture. Anything you do in the world of permaculture makes makes a difference and if enough people all do it then of course it makes a, a bigger difference and I kind of I kind of feel like um, uh, and I think I've, I already recorded a podcast about this but I really like the whole thing about uh, uh, Derek Jensen and saying if you do all the things that uh, Al Gore says in his movie to do the if, first movie the first movie yeah if, if everybody if everybody did all the things that Al Gore listed, then it would reduce our carbon footprint by 22%. But our carbon footprint currently grows at a rate of 2% per month. So in 11 years, it'll all be a wash. And and so I kind of feel like we need a better recipe book. And I think, I think that just with the list that we're providing, not only can you cut your footprint down to zero from within your home but I think that, that there are things that you can do to start reversing it and so it's just a, a better we just need better recipe books is what we need and we need to blaze a trail to make a better recipe book well, and there can be simple, small things. You can start uh, slow and easy and, you know, just implement one thing at a time. It's it's not about making all these changes all at once and, and going off the deep end either. So I, I think it's just, okay, well, that one resonates with me. I'm going to try that one. I think the first one, whenever anybody asks me this, so it's like, okay, I live in an apartment. What can I do? I, I think that um, a really great, simple example, it's like something you can do starting today is to go poo 
And I mean, it's it's always my go-to example for that because a you live a more luxuriant life, and it saves you money, and it, it saves you time. Uh, you reduce the toxins in your life, while at the same time you reduce the amount of energy that you consume in a variety of ways, and you reduce the amount of water that you use. Not because you're sacrificing, but because it's easier. When you go poolless, then uh, you you go into the shower, and a minute and a half later you're all done and you're bored. And now you get out. You get out. You get out not because you're making a sacrifice. You get out of the shower because you're bored and there's nothing left to do in there. Well, some of us enjoy the hot water and want to just drink that in. You know, I'm not literally drink it, but but um, the poolis is a reference to shampoo, and it means going without shampoo, uh, without conditioner. Some people still use conditioner when they go poolis. But what Paul's referring to is no soap, no shampoo, no conditioner, just water. So, so still take as many showers as you want. Take a shower every day. Take a shower twice a day. It's just that, you know, soap and shampoo have been sold to you through marketing. And it turns out that 99.9% of body funk is water-soluble. You don't need soap or shampoo in the shower. When you need soap and shampoo, it's because you've got grease or oil on you and you want to get it off. That's kind of it. But your natural stuff... You know what? Here's another thing. And I'm, I'm not sure that this is related. But when, uh, you know, 15 years ago, when I worked as a software engineer... Then um, I used soap and shampoo in the shower, um, and I uh, had to like I would have clothes that I would wear. And I would wash, I would I, everything like all the all of the socks and underwear and shirts and stuff. All that stuff got I got one day of use out of it, and it was like totaled, and it had to go in uh, into the laundry. And but but pants, I kind of got to the point where I felt like. I could get two days out of a pair of pants um, and, and and for work, for just sitting on my butt all day as a software engineer at some job. I could, I, I could get on the third day, I couldn't do three days because then those pants would stink and get funky. And it's like, um, so that's, that's, uh, that turned into three loads of laundry uh, every week. So that's where I was before. And and then I did Poolis, and I started to kind of do the same sorts of tests. And first of all, when I switched to Poolis, it turns out uh, uh, I my body odor appears to, after several months, appears to have gone away. I remember uh, meeting Jocelyn. At, Ten years ago. Yeah, and it was like about a month in, we went on a trip, and you had to have the talk with me. About how my deodorant, I needed to select a deodorant that was possibly a bit more powerful <laughs> than uh, whatever I was using at the time, which I was using what I thought to be a pretty powerful deodorant. Um, but it's like it wasn't kind of. So um, now I've switched to boots. I haven't had deodorant for five years or more. Five, six years, seven years. Has it been? It's been seven years that I've been poolless. Yeah, probably. I, You know, I always thought I naturally had greasy hair until I went poolless. 
and and um, the first month I did have greasy hair the full first month uh, because my system was making extra grease to make up for the stripping uh, of the oils the stripping of the natural oils process of the shampoo and so you know you're stripping oils out of your hair with shampoo and then putting oils back in with conditioner it's kind of crazy <laughs> whereas if you just use water um, it rinses out some of the oils but leaves the protective natural oils and a lot of people do feel their hair is more luxuriant um, and, and healthier just with its own natural oils so um, I, I I want there's so much more that I want to say here, but we already have yeah. like like well, I don't know five podcasts just about going poolless. I just kind of feel like it's a great example. It's a great go-to for that kind of thing. It's it's really quick and simple. Plus now you're spending zero on shampoo. Well, here's the thing that I've never I don't think I've mentioned those previous podcasts. I used to use dandruff shampoo. And um, and it's like the level of dandruffy stuff I've got going on is now less than the amount of dandruffy stuff I had going on when I would use a dandruff shampoo every day. And and I'm not using anything. Yeah. Well, even even when you're buying products uh, without, yeah, we could go in. But yes, probably uh, the next. Okay. thing so on the list the, you've got a list there yeah 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 you wanted to talk about the free shelf oh right uh so like okay what's that what are things that you can do without buying land and i kind of feel like um uh do a uh yeah do a free shelf um now you could just take it down to um the goodwill or something but then they sell it i kind of feel like rather than throwing shit away it's like if you don't want to use it anymore and you don't want to put it into a garage sale or something like that, then, um, you know, somehow make something available to others. Like, here's a designated thing that it's like, I don't want it anymore. If anybody sees anything here that they want, they can have it. And and it's like this whole free shelf thing has been amazing. Well, I kind of wonder, you know, how they have those uh, community little library boxes that people put up as part of uh, city repair type places or in their neighborhood, they put up little library things. I, I kind of wonder if those couldn't be expanded or a section added for like a free shelf section. Like, oh, look here, I have, and, you know, a pair of pants I never wear anymore, but they're a perfectly good pair of pants. Let's put that on the free shelf. I, I agree, I agree. Uh, the free shelf, that's a that's a quick one. What what's yeah. next on the list? Uh, repairing things. Uh, repair cafes are popping up everywhere. They're amazing, and um, you don't need to buy land to have uh, to to fix the things that you have that are not working anymore, and and so get those things to last longer. Well, this is for someone who doesn't have land or things, but you did have a boneyard down here. Oh right, because she's writing for New Pioneer magazine, which is for homesteaders. And um, I think every homesteader should have a boneyard. So we have a boneyard, and there's just a bunch of stuff in it where it's like, um, maybe we'll use this someday. We're going to put it in a spot where people don't really see it, and uh, we'll tap into it on an as-needed basis. And we have. In fact, um, uh, Jim, who wrote that book on scrounging, 
Uh, it seems like, you know, going out to the boneyard was a regular thing during the ATC this year. Jim Jukzak. I yeah. think that's how you say his last name. So, yeah, awesome, awesome book on Scrandic. Um So the next item on the list is to vote with your wallet. I And, and I kind of feel like... That is that is a really huge one, and I hear a lot of people complain about Monsanto, and yet uh, they say it while their mouth is full of Monsanto food, and it's kind of like, uh, or or people are out there protesting against fracking, but they're heating their home with natural gas, and uh, or uh, the people who go and they they protest at Standing Rock about oil, but they drove there in a gasoline-powered vehicle sometimes a gas guzzler this is the thing that uh kind of is a pet peeve of mine when people say i can't afford that when really it's a choice i i I choose not to spend my money that way it's not i can't afford that i've i've seen people who have very expensive cars they vacation in Cabo or wherever resort kind of place they want to vacation in they have the latest tech in their house, they have a really expensive house, expensive cars they send their kids to private school and then they tell me they can't afford organic now that's a choice and that's fine but don't say oh I can't afford that, I mean to me that drives me absolutely bonkers, it's well I'm choosing to spend my money different places and then that's empowering and that's your choice so i think you and i did a review of the food cure movie and uh one thing that i regret not mentioning that i and this is the perfect time to mention it is that these people and they had cancer and they got their cancer to go away and um, what they did was is they took toxins out of their life with with like probably 90% of their effort being put into their organic food that they were eating. Yeah. And I, and I kind of feel like the one thing to add is like we should observe these cures for cancer. And because if we if we modify our lifestyle to be close to or closer to what those people are doing basically we're doing a preventative against cancer so then it kind of leads to the whole thing that joel salatin says when people say i can't afford organic food joel says well have you priced cancer lately right and so it's kind of like you know let's pretend oh i've got great insurance well okay there's an 80 percent chance that your insurance is going to pull you through it and get to get you all the treatment 20 percent chance you're going to fucking die you motherfucker but then the next thing is is that it's kind of like you know it's not really in your insurance company's best interest to like have you live i mean i've i don't know how many stories i've heard of where uh people go in and said something like oh hey doc uh i got like this horrible stomach ache and the doctor's like take two aspirin and you know call me in two months and then uh in that time they die of stomach cancer and it's kind of like and my own recent medical shit you know and it's like i never went to a hospital until a few years ago but i went in and i was in excruciating pain uh what was that three years ago i was just i was in brutal brutal nightmare pain and um it's not until i got the hospital bill 
that I had to pay myself to find out that the insurance company basically said I wasn't in pain. The insurance company found it to be a hell of a lot fucking cheaper if I would just shut the fuck up and go home and die. And so it's kind of like, um, all right, so I, that's, that's not a play. Organic food or better than organic? I think, I think that we can all grow something better. Although a lot of people go and they buy land or they get to a place where they can grow a garden and they're going to grow all this food and they're tempted away from organic by a variety of different things. Or they're surrounded by people who spray and then there's overdrift. And, and so then their their stuff is not truly organic anymore or better than organic. I mean, I think polyculture, organic polyculture food is vastly superior to organic. But well, the bottom line is, is like you're, this, this food is going to make you sick. It's not you want to talk about what's affordable or what you can't afford. It's like what you can't afford is to have cancer. And then plus, I hate to, to throw this out there, but I'm going to because it gets thrown in my direction every fucking day. And that is think of the children. You know, in fact, this guy, this guy that was at that market that we were talking about just a moment ago, then uh, he was saying like, oh, my uh, my my sister's kid or something like that uh, is five years old and has leukemia really bad. And it's kind of like that, that. But hey, you know, I would much rather spend five hundred thousand dollars on treatment of that kid than feeding that kid an extra five hundred dollars a year to make sure it's uh, organic right well and and there's so uh, this could be a whole podcast in and of itself um joel salatin did a really good talk at google about the affordability of healthy organic food he said you know you can live on eggs and even if you're spending extra on your eggs for pastured organic eggs even if you're spending up to seven bucks a dozen for those eggs which is the high end of what you can find these days for pastured organic eggs that's still 12 eggs you can make a lot of meals and you can spread that a long way. There there are choices within choices within choices. And um, a really good friend of mine, when she was on a limited budget, um, she chose the foods that their family ate the most of to buy organic, like tomatoes. They did lots of spaghettis, lots of pizzas, lots of um, tomato sauces on different things. And she decided she could afford on her budget to buy everything organic but she could get organic tomatoes and she chose one or two items like that and she chose to have them be organic and you know if you want you know paul is a big fan of the heroin hookers and hooch philosophy of your you know we support people spending their money however they want to spend it um that's just his joking way of talking about that heroin hooker oh, seen the hookers <laughs> so around the house <laughs> yeah. so i i'm going to judge how people spend their money that's just in my nature but i'm not going to tell other people how to spend their money 
Um, of course, I want people to buy healthy food and make that more of a priority. But there's there's a gazillion ways you can do that. It doesn't have to be, you know, anyway. It could be eggs. It could be rice and beans. It could be, you know, really affordable things that you buy organic. Um, and if you're making it yourself, it's way, way, way more affordable than eating out all the time. You know, there's so many different things you can do. I think an important thing down that road of what you're saying is like during the ATC, then you were cooking, which thanks again for doing that, by the way. You're welcome. And, 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 and doing it. And um, and of course, you know, we're feeding organic or better. And, and there's a fair amount of stuff that's coming out of the Hugel culture berms that is making it onto everybody's plate for every meal. Um, and and so uh, then there's that gal and she showed up and she was struggling with arthritis, I believe it was. And um, but a few days in, it all went away and she felt it was the food you were feeding her. And I think I think there's a lot of stuff. And in fact, the the Pulis thing we were just talking about. Remember that guy that that emailed me and said that uh, his 20 years of daily migraines, which resulted in once a week he would either black out or vomit because they were so extreme, all gone after going Pulis. Yeah. And yeah. and so I think that this kind of stuff is a big big part yeah. of of what we're talking about. And and I think organic. To me, if you're going to go and buy food, organic is really the only option. Now, granted, I'll, we'll eat at a restaurant once in a long while, and we know it's not organic, but we do tend to go to restaurants that will serve organic, but once in a while, and I kind of feel like, what are you going to do? You know, we're going to, it's going to happen. And But on the other hand, you know, I do know that at home, we're looking at 99% organic or better for the food that we have at home. Well, yeah, and and again, that's choices. I mean, we uh, we know a lot of people, and a lot of people write about this on the Permies forums about how they never eat out because they get sick from it or they just don't feel good after it, so they just don't do it anymore. I mean, you and I eat out uh, a lot more than probably some people, but uh, again, that's one of our choices. And, and we're okay with that, but find the places that make sense to you. Some people might vote with their wallet by um, riding a bike instead of using uh, a, a gas-powered transportation. You know, what, whatever it is that seems to you, that's what voting uh, with your wallet is about. And, of course, we, we mostly focused on food there, but there's so much more to that. Um, so vote with your wallet is a thing that you can do without having to have great big gobs of land. Oh, for sure. Yeah. All right. What's the next item? Um, owning a home without groveling to a bank. So uh, this item is about the book Mortgage Free by Rob Roy. Um, and I interviewed Rob Roy in one of my podcasts about six years ago. Um, and so... Uh, but. But the big thing is, is that he has a recipe for how you can get to the point of owning a home uh, with, without, without a mortgage, uh, hence mortgage-free. That? That's, that's really cool. And then um, the next one is early retirement extreme. 
very similar to the Mortgage Free Book, but uh, Jacob Lund Fisker uh, um, basically has a recipe for um, if you want to live a very extravagant life and be a slave to your choices, you can. And then at the same time, he basically um, got himself. I think he was able to retire himself in four years, but he kind of, you know, has since optimized things and made it clear that people could totally retire after three years. Uh, and so I, I, a lot of it is is to just cut back on all the stuff. It's it's kind of like if you can re- retire and you don't have to go to work anymore, do you want to? Do you, now, they're, granted, there's going to be some people that are going to be like they love their job and they're going to just keep going forever because of reasons. And it's like, okay, more power to you. Of course, if you adopted these philosophies, then you might be able to um, uh, put, you know, build a safety net for yourself. Yeah. Um, some of the people that do the really extreme uh, frugal living, whether they're doing it for early retirement, whether they're doing it uh, to save up for their homestead or they're doing different things to, you know, reduce their mortgage or not have a mortgage. And some people go frugal, frugal, frugal and and end up uh, buying a lot of food that is super, super cheap that I I don't know that I could do that if it meant buying some of the food that some people advocate and and buy to do these kind of frugal things. Just just an aside for me. It's an observation. I, it doesn't have to be all about the food. I mean, there's ways you could still do this while still having optimal food, of course. But it's it's just interesting. Some of that doesn't always overlap as you think it might. Um, the next one is give a gift to your future self with passive income streams. I I saw something on YouTube recently where it was a guy, he's an artist, and he basically covered this. And and he was saying like, oh, yeah, just um, sometimes you put your artwork up to one of these sites where they, you know, buy it. Uh, and he showed like one of his pieces of art that got used for a magazine cover. Uh, then he was saying like, um, uh, they, you have to put all these tags in there, and they kind of make it a big pain in the ass. So if you're putting up 200 images, that could be a, you know such a big job that you just don't even want to do it. Um, but maybe just put up your best 20 images, and then it's worth it. Um, and then if you get enough money and you feel like putting more up, you'll put more up later. But all right, so uh, residual income streams or passive income. Uh, the idea is is that you do something, you set it up once, you don't fiddle with it again, and money keeps coming in. And so uh, uh, that's something that you could do without a big gobble land, and it gives you the freedom and the future. Like you, you suddenly, you know, and I just kind of want to, the biggest and most important thing anybody could do, and they don't have big tracts of land, is to put knowledge in your head because if you learn about all these little bits and bobs of permaculture and um, you're still going to a job it's like without all this knowledge you might be going to the job because you have to you have to pay those bills you have to do this you have to do that you have to have to have to have to have to and maybe you got a family to support so you have to support your family um, 
but if you have all this knowledge in your head, then suddenly um, you don't have to. There's options now. There's there's a variety of different paths you could possibly travel that are different from that have-to path. So if you go to that same job and you live in the same house and your life is exactly the same, it's now instead of a have-to, it's part of your life strategy. You're choosing to travel that path as a strategy to something else uh, or to something that is your optimal thing. Well, I I love that way of thinking, and that's part of why when people say, I can't afford that, or I have to have a day job, or whatever, I think that that's the opposite of empowering. But it's if you're saying, I'm choosing to spend my money this way, and I'm choosing my day job for X, Y, and Z, I'm choosing these things, then you're owning where you're at and you're empowered and you're doing it from a place of choice not obligation or you know some weird idea of how life is supposed to be but it's hey I'm doing this and and I'm making the best of it all right what was the question what was the thing where uh um, that was residual income streams. We're going through all of these things for number six, which is, you know, what can someone who doesn't own land do? So we've got a couple of podcasts already about residual income streams. Yes. Yeah. Residual income streams, they're yeah. good. And you don't need land. Ta-da! <laughs> uh, we must be... I must be getting tired here. I keep forgetting to get the microphone in front of Paul. So uh, you had some comments you wanted to make about organic versus local. Oh, right. Um, uh, I, I want to say, so if you don't have land and so you're buying food, and we also talked about, you know, vote with your dollar. I, I got to say that when I go out and I'm buying food, I only buy organic I, I don't even look at non-organic food. It's like not even an option. Um, and then and then a lot of people are talking about like, oh, I'm a lot. <laughs> are you trying to get me to eat that thing? Oh. So so it's like all right. So a lot of people are talking about how they I don't know they they buy local instead of organic, and it's kind of like that doesn't even make sense to me. I I can't I can't fathom it. Um, local if it's local but it's you know coated with chemicals and toxins and stuff like that I I just don't understand. Uh, I mean, do you want that kid to have leukemia? I don't understand. Right. It doesn't. It just doesn't make sense. So um, I I think that it, you know go in when you're gonna go out and you're gonna go and and vote with your dollar and you're gonna do what's best for you and you don't have land it's like organic and local is best organic and hyper local is the very best um and organic that's not local is fine local that's not organic that's that's not acceptable no don't don't touch that well i I think the where local can be an advantage is it's like uh, some of the farms that I work with that I help them with accounting or with payroll, um, they're not organic certified, and yet they're doing better than organic practices. And 
and if you know your farmer and you know what their practices are and you know it's better than big egg organic then yeah i'd choose that kind of local farm any day over the big egg organic that's just you know trying to get that organic label for the better price point but they're still kind of you know they're tilling more they're doing all these practices that don't necessarily build soil but just creates a product for market um so in that case i'd i'd go with local but that's with a lot of caveats that's not just because it's local i i agree so what's next on what's the next item vegan versus omni versus junk food yeah um I, and I know I've covered this in, in uh, podcasts in the past, so I'm going to just be really quick. Uh, it seems to me like almost all the studies about how great veganism is are, um, are and I eat mostly vegan, and and which uh, you know I guess there are some people out there that are omni that are eating like mostly meat, <laughs> but but I think uh, I think an important thing is is that um, uh, the studies usually are like. The standard American diet versus an organic vegan diet, um, and it's kind of like, why can't you do uh, something that's going to be like more of an omnivore's permaculture diet versus the standard American diet, or uh, versus even vegan? But I think the most important thing is, is that when we're discussing these kinds of things, you need to, to eat the diet that is healthiest for you. And, and there's a lot of people that have tried the vegan diet, and it has made them really sick. So uh, for those people, I would not advocate the vegan diet. Um, on the other hand, I kind of wonder if those same people, if they ate something that was vegan but it was uh, organic, maybe that they wouldn't be so sick. But uh, at the same time, I kind of feel like, no, you gotta, you got to go. It's good for you. Now, the next thing is is that there's a lot of people out there making arguments that um, uh, the vegan diet is better for the planet. And it's like, that is not true. That, there is no way that's true. I, oh, there's so much. To, it's a whole nother podcast there. So it's like, no, 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 no. And, and at the same time, we could also build a case about how a vegan diet is even more destructive to the planet. And and it's like, but, you know, oh, I've got so much to say on this. But, but really the thing is, is that you should be living a life that is of the best luxury for you. And whatever diet is that, that works best for you, whatever makes you happiest and healthiest is, is what's right. And then you, you, you basically find your path to optimize that for the planet from there. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add that um, our standard American diet, the standard meat-eating American diet, has involved primarily muscle meats and not um, nose-to-tail eating. Um, and, and muscle meat in excess of portions of what has been traditional for humans for eons. So I, I think if you're still eating meat, I think what makes more sense is to change it up with uh, bone broths and with um, a 
other aspects of, you know, even eating bone marrow or, you know, celebrating and enjoying the whole animal and eating organ meats and all of these other things and not just focusing on muscle meats. I think that's um, a more respectful and healthier option for a lot of uh, a lot of ways. So, and there are um, regenerative aspects of having animals in the landscape, not the way CAFO systems have done it, not the way big um, agricultural processes have done it, but there are regenerative ways animals can be in the landscape. So I just wanted to put those there, even though you're trying to move on. Um, so then we're moving into uh, energy systems. And uh, the first one is heat. <laughs> well, of course, uh, a lot of a lot of our big problems are with just energy. You just and and it's like uh, um, I I think that when you talk about using grid power, let's point out that I think that the only truly clean energy that there is when using grid power is going to be wind energy. Um, I mean. Uh, we we know all about nuclear. Um, we we know all about coal. Um, we might not know enough about coal. We might not know enough about how coal is worse than nuclear. But but they all you know. And the thing is, I think a lot of people don't know about how hydro is such an environmental disaster. Um, and but that's an, another podcast for another day. But the key is is that if you're going to talk about saving energy in your home, and that's what we're doing. It's like don't have land. What can you do? And, and it's kind of like, uh, uh, all right, um, rocket mass heater we've talked about a little bit. And, and it's like not, a, not everybody's going to be comfortable with that. It's like not a problem. There's the whole uh, article that I have about how I cut 87% off of my electric heat bill. And you know what? I kind of feel like if I had to do it over again, I might have been able to get that up to 95%. I might have even been able to do it uh, do it better than than 95 percent, but um, I might have been able to even get it down to well, if I don't even have a rocket mass heater, but get it down to something like zero or something like that. Well, maybe 99 percent. The, the the key is is that I've got the big article, I've got the uh, the the video on YouTube, um, I've talked about it in this podcast before, and so just to try and summarize it really quick. Uh, um, what I did was is that I spent a lot of my day either uh, at my desk or in my bed. And I came up with ways to warm those or warm my person at those places rather than uh, heating the whole house. And then I just turned the thermostat down and down and down because I'd be too warm. At my desk, I ended up being too warm with microheaters. And I had, at the time... What I had was uh, a dog bed heater at my feet. I had an incandescent light, a 40-watt incandescent light above me, a heated mouse, a heated keyboard. Total energy usage was 82.5 watts. And so with that, I turned my thermostat down to 50, and I was very comfortable. And I am not a durable person. Uh, like, it's not like... Oh yeah, I'm just tough that way, and it's like no. If it gets down to like 66, it's too cold for me. So at 50 degrees, so the, all the house is at 50 degrees. Um, I uh, I was perfectly comfortable, and we got a video of that with a gal who doesn't have the natural insulation that I sport, 
and she was wearing regular clothes, not a parka, not a coat, nothing like that. And we set it, uh, we we set her up in that environment, and uh, it was at uh, 50 degrees. There's a thermometer right there, and you can read what it says uh, in the camera shot. It says 50 degrees, and we asked her how comfortable are you, and she was there for half an hour, and she was perfectly comfortable. <clears throat> and so, um, and she says it feels like it's 70, 75. And so, uh, but it's actually 50. All right, so um, uh, I think that that's, that's huge. That's an important thing. And, and when you're talking about saving energy, you have to start with heat. Um, home energy use, more, wherever you are in the country, more than 50%, well, I'm going to have to change that. More than 50% is for heat. On average, the average American, more than 50% is heat. I believe that here in Montana, and I feel weird saying that because we're actually in Washington State at the moment, um, look, there's starting to get to be trees and smoke from forest fires. Um, but I think that here in Montana, or in, in Montana, it's uh, 75%. But uh, uh, the... People start talking about those light bulbs, and it's not the light bulbs. Just screw the light bulbs. They, the things they tell you about light bulbs are all wrong. That was when I was saving all that energy. That was with an incandescent light bulb. So, for heat, and you're not buying land, a rocket mass heater, or uh, you know, do this thing about heating where you are. And then a lot of people are like, oh well, my family doesn't sit at a desk all day, so that won't work for us. And it's like. I'm amazed that I have to spell it out for these dumb fucks. It's like, seriously? You can't think of a way to make this work for you. All right, dumb fuck. I'm going to assume you're so fucking dumb that you sit in front of a television all fucking day and that's all that you do because you're a dumb fuck. And so it's like, it doesn't take much. All you got to do is put a heated pad at your feet and so now you've got warm toes... And then you're going to put a series of lights that are just about six inches over your head, like maybe five or six. And now you're you're well illuminated and the light is not in your eyes. And, uh, hey, you can put a little blanket on your lap or something. And boom, baby, you are so warm that you're going to say, oh, I need to turn the thermostat down because I'm too warm. That's it. And it's like... For any scenario you can come up with, we could come up with a solution. But yeah, you got to put more than four seconds of thought into it. It's like it doesn't take much. Well, it's just so incredible how much money you can save with with that, too. I mean, I, I'm blown away at how high a lot of people's electric bills are. And, of course, people in the South, you know, can focus on ways to reduce their air conditioning bills similarly. It's just not our thing, and it's not something we need so much in Montana. Well, we've already made a podcast about how to cool your home with permaculture. Yeah. yeah. So the next one on the list is hot water. Um, before we go into hot water, I just oh. do a, a quick thing of saying, like, a lot of people will turn their thermostat down to 68, and to me that sounds like sacrifice. And whereas if we do these things to make microheaters for heating people instead of heating the whole house, then you naturally go and turn your thermostat down. Um, I think I could have, you know, if I wasn't worried about, you know, pipes freezing, I think I could have turned it down to lower than 50. 
but um, uh, anyway, all right. What was the next item that we're going into? Hot water. Hot water. I think I think there's a lot of things that reduce hot water usage, but I I think that the the king of them is going poolis. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing how I mean the average American shower is seven and a half minutes long, and um, I've timed myself a couple of times for doing poolis showers. And it's like at a minute. If I'm if I'm hustling, I can do it in less than a minute. But um, if I'm dragging my feet, I can drag it out to a minute and a half. But seriously, at a minute and a half, I'm getting really bored in there. And so um, I don't know. I, all these people do these things that are about sacrifice and saving hot water. But it's like I don't know. The poolist thing. I'm living a far more luxuriant life and dramatically reducing my hot water bill. The next thing would be with laundry. Um, it's like for nearly everything you do laundry with, cold water cleans as effectively as warm or hot water. Well, yeah, that that's moving us down the list, too. That's one of the items on the list. And the, the one thing we didn't talk about with the shampoo is... All the money you save on not buying those products and the and the recycling and trash you save from not having all the darn bottles and stuff. But um, la- yes, laundries. <laughs> How much shampoo would you use? Not that much. <laughs> well, you know, I I would get a bottle of shampoo and it would last like a month. Yeah, but still, I'm just saying you don't have to right. deal with that. That's true. You don't uh, have to go shop for it. You don't have to like throw out the bottle. You don't, yeah. And with a family, it's more, you know, it's you times whatever. You're not smearing toxic gick on yourself anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And with the laundry, uh, I, it was just me and my son in a tiny, um, tiny condo uh, several years ago, many years ago. And I stopped using my dryer. And I didn't need much heat because I was in the Seattle area. So just stopping using my, stopping the use of my dryer, I cut 40% off my electric bill. And you're talking about the clothes dryer? Yes, the clothes dryer. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's profound. Um, uh, I don't know if I ever put it into a podcast before, but um, remember uh, my friend David? And uh, as I was about to head out to Montana, he said, Hey, uh, I'm about to leave on this trip to Mexico. Could you pretty please, uh, uh, you know, look after my house while I'm gone to Mexico? And he and I had um, a lot of long debates over saving energy. And um, uh, so then he has like 10 years of power bills for what was his power bill usage. And then uh, I, I move in. And suddenly the power usage is cut to a quarter of that. And he used CFLs. I would only use incandescent light. Um, but one of the things that I did is that, I mean, every time he washed his, did his laundry, then um, he was uh, uh, using the clothes dryer. I did, I did not use the clothes dryer. I, I had a, a clothes drying rack. Right. And so I would either dry them inside or I sometimes I would dry things outside. But um, but yeah, that's an enormous uh, difference in energy usage. Well, and and the big 
the big advantage to line drying or drying your clothes on a clothes rack, because I've used line drying before, and to me that just implies any way of drying your clothes, but other people are like, well, can I do it on a clothes rack? Well, yeah. <laughs> Isn't it funny how specific people get? Um, your clothes last longer. Oh, yeah. They they last so much longer, and that's something good you can do to save money and not have as much waste for the planet to deal with. I, it's just a fantastic advantage. The cold water and the line drying both extend the life of your clothes. So about two years before I met you, I got that shirt at Goodwill for a dollar that says um, more cowbell. Yeah. And and it's like uh, and then uh, I don't know. Shortly before I met you, I, I accidentally hung my like my the shoulder of that. I, I hooked it on a nail or something and ripped a big hole in it. And so I I mended it um, myself and it shows it with like, a big patch. It, yeah. it looks like some doofus mended it, not a pro. Uh-huh. And and it's like uh, that that shirt is about to die now. So I bought it used at at the Goodwill, um, and uh, it's now got to be 12 years old. Right. And well, it's we've one been... of my favorite shirts. I've worn it like twice a week for right. 12 years. As soon as it's back in the clean, you wear it again. So it's, yeah, probably twice a week on average. And it, um, yeah, and it, it's just now starting to come apart though yeah it's gotten it's now getting old so it's that has that shirt's had a long life (laughs) and it i don't know if it's ever seen the inside of a dryer uh maybe maybe once or twice but um but that's uh so we touched on lighting a little bit that was on the list anything else you want to say about lighting Incandescent is superior to LED, but we already have a podcast out about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, then uh, there is also the idea, if someone doesn't have land, of um, more people living under one roof together. <laughs> the whole, uh, how do you get 20 people to live under one roof without stabbing each other? Um, and so, but the bottom line is, is that if you're not going to buy land, what's something that you can do? Um, and I, I kind of get the impression that, you know, what Amy's talking about is to make things better for the planet. Um, and, and it's kind of like this, this solves, it doesn't solve everything, but it, it, it reduces all of the global problems to half, or at least, you know, uh, uh, when you have a footprint of a certain size, then it cuts your footprint, whatever that is, in half when you're in community. Uh, when you got 20 people living under one roof, even even it'll even get smaller than half. Well, so, I think that it cuts it in half if you have one roommate. The problem is is the stabby thing. Well, no, because with one roommate, it's kind of like okay, uh, you're you're talking about going from uh, a one bedroom house to a two bedroom house. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so it's like if you have just if you have a uh, just a two-bedroom house you're sharing with somebody, then uh, it's kind of like you've, you're going to probably reduce 30%. Your footprint's going to get reduced 30%. But when you get to 20 people, it's like more than half. 
But um, And then there's a lot of other benefits. What if there's people in there that like to cook? And what if there's people in there that like to garden? What if there's people in there that like to fix things? What if there's what if, what if, what if, what if? And there's all these other people, and it's a community living. But then, of course, there's always that whole problem of uh, uh, the stabby part. And, um, and so people come with drama packages. And uh, for those of you that have listened to my podcast and watched things go, you could you you've noticed that there's been some drama, and it's it's been really great with the people that come by. So we had uh, uh, people uh, at our place yesterday. Um, they were here for a PDC several years ago, and then they they did the Sepper program, and we were visiting, and they uh, uh, they're very interested in starting their own community, and they've been uh, renting stuff. And it's like, okay, not everybody is awful, but you, but, but of course he had his stories. And then on top of that, this couple, they talked about having a next door neighbor that is just a nightmare. And it's like, they're now seriously contemplating moving because it's just gotten to be so horrific. And it's like, but we all know that we've all heard the stories. We know somebody who's rented out something. And, and then we've heard the stories of, things going bad and it's kind of like but when we start thinking like oh i'm going to get a rental property for the income opportunity and it's kind of like no i think i think things going horrible is kind of like a good 60 to 70 percent of the time um so you know and then the then the remaining uh uh 30 to 40 percent it's like not horrible but you know compared to the horrible it's like not so bad but really smooth is maybe 10% of the time. And so it's it's kind of like uh, these are human beings. And so how do you get 20 people to live under one roof without stabbing each other? The benefits are huge. And and we really need to to solve the stabby problem. And um <clears throat> and I've got I've got a lot of new things to say that it, that from the last few months that I have not yet put in a podcast, but that's another podcast for another day. The, the important thing is, is that um, uh, if you are able to do that, and there are people that are, there are people that have gotten together where it's four or five people all sharing one roof, and it's been wonderful, but it's rare, but it's wonderful. Yeah. But it's rare. <laughs> wonderful. Good for the planet. But rare. <laughs> What's next? Yeah. Um, well, there's about five, six other items under eliminating toxic gick. And we've already talked about the Pulis. Um, so there's also what is your house made of? Right. And so, um, you know, they say with, with paint, there's the whole VOC thing. Yeah. And it kind of off-gasses, you know, it's, it's it, the off-gassing is kind of a half-life off-gassing. So if the paint has been there for five years, it's effectively done. But still, there's stuff throughout your house that's off-gassing toxic gick. And um, we kind of, we, we, we live in a society where we have standards about like, well, it can be toxic, but it can't be this toxic. So what's considered acceptable is still toxic and and it's like but it's only that one thing and it's like oh wait there's like a hundred things in your house that are all within this this level of toxicity um and you start adding them all up and it's like oh no no 
don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't, don't add that. Don't do the math. You know, that's just get the cancer and get, and then pay for the treatment. That's, you know, that's all you got to do. I, I've heard people say before, well, if it wasn't safe for us, the government wouldn't allow it to be sold or wouldn't allow us to buy it. <laughs> it's kind of, mm. which is, which is true to a degree. Mm. Um, but at the same time, there's kind of like this <clears throat> cancer industry. Um, not, not, you, don't confuse that with an industry that's trying to eliminate cancer or save you from cancer or cure cancer. No, there's, there's an industry that needs you to have cancer. <laughs> Please have cancer. Uh, it's, it's kind of twisted. Yeah. So, um, at the same time, yes, the government is, uh, working to make sure that the stuff in your house isn't too toxic. And by a certain, um, definition of too toxic, which, the definition of like where their line is is still in my opinion far too toxic but it's like you know so so basically everybody on the planet's being put through a bit of an IQ test um, we are going to thin the herd <laughs> well there was um, the aftermath of Katrina and FEMA brought all these trailers in uh, for housing for people who are displaced by Katrina and then people the the trailers were so full of off-gassing uh, I think it was particularly formaldehyde I'm not sure exactly uh, but people were getting sick from the FEMA trailers because trailers are typically so full of uh, glues and formaldehyde and off-gassing materials that people we're sick. Yep. Um, and, and I think, you know, the house that you and I live in right now has uh, a great deal of uh, toxins in it, hence we, why we call it the Fisher-Price house. Um, and, and I hope that uh, eventually we'll be able to uh, move into a Wafati. Yeah. What's next on the so list? So there's the house, there's furniture. Right. So the furniture is made out of basically petroleum wrapped around petroleum uh, with a wood frame. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and then a lot of the other furniture is made with a lot of glue. Oodles yeah. of glue. Well, and a lot of furniture is treated for stain resistance or fumigated different ways. And Fire resistance. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and carpets also off gas. Yeah. As, yeah. So then um, there's your household cleaners. I'd like to refer people back to the podcast we did several years ago, like four years ago, on that movie called uh, Chimerical. And um, I think the big takeaway from that is that if you look, if you just look at the mom of the family at the beginning of the movie and at the end of the movie, where they took all of her chemicals away, all of her cleaning chemicals away, and they went to something more natural. And I think I would advocate something even more natural than what was their natural solutions. But it seems to me that by the end of the movie, she gained color in her cheeks. She gained health. She gained 30 IQ points. Uh, it was a massive and magnificent transformation. She gained a vocabulary somewhere, somehow. Like, like, uh, uh, it, it, the, the chemicals that she used to clean her home were suppressing her vocabulary somehow. 
Well, it's amazing what those kind of toxins will do to you and 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 do to your brain power. So um, that's a good point. So bug killer, you can eat. Uh, diatomaceous earth. There we go. Yep. That's uh, there's a whole article on that and using that for fleas or other uh, animals. There's a siren. There's something going on here. Right. We're all stopped on the freeway. We kind of can't move. And it looks like some of the vehicles behind us are kind of going to the right. Oh, there we go. There's Johnny Law cruising down the left side. Go find okay. out what's going on. Okay. Uh, we're almost to the end here. There's, uh, you have something you had called the dangers of tap water. Well, and, and I kind of feel like uh, when we did the review of the food cure, then uh, one of the things that they, they said is like, okay, if you want to beat cancer, not only have to eat all these foods that we're talking about, um, and they have to be super organic and things like that, but even more than that, uh, when you wash yourself, you're not allowed to use chlorinated water. You're not allowed to come into contact with it. And, the, and you have to drink lots of water, but it can't be your chlorinated water. Chlorinated water is out. Um, and I, I, I also kind of feel like, uh, um, wow, there's a lot of stuff about people's water where it's like, um, I mean, we, we've, we've gone to the trouble to build these sewage treatment plants so that the quality of, of well water can be approved for cities. And then we just dump other horrible, awful stuff into the water. And... <clears throat> It just seems like more and more often you hear about people, and I don't remember hearing about this uh, ever when I was a kid, but uh, but nowadays it's like, oh, because of this mine nearby, all the water is terrible. Uh, Mike Ayler's place. I think I think now that he has been dead long enough, I can share this. But apparently, Mike was telling me about how he got into a little bit of a feud with a neighbor of his. And it's like I think I think we all need to embrace that people have feuds and people it's it's not limited to just me. <laughs> but so Mike got into a feud with this guy, his neighbor, and his neighbor went out and created a business in the local town of like bring your uh, RV waste. I'll take your RV waste. And so he has this RV waste disposal company that he opened up and he could have called it you know, Mike Ayler's uh, RV waste disposal company, because what he would do is he would dump it all along the fence line to Mike's property, and uh, it made it so that all of the groundwater in the area was undrinkable. I didn't, I've never operated an RV before. I didn't realize that what is in those tanks is a chemical slurry to so that all that waste will slide right out. So, but it's so full. You're, you, you, the RV waste is chemicals and yeah, got that blue stuff in yeah, there. Yeah. So uh, what you see in some of those porta potties, you know. Yeah. You don't want that in your groundwater, and that's what happened. It was in the groundwater. Yeah. Um, but there's other things that happen in other cities or other places yeah. where people dump horrible things. Well, and I just listened to a book called uh, The Brain Maker, uh, written by a neurologist, and he was talking about how our gut microbes are so essential to our mental health and our psychology and so many other things. 
Um, and he said that drinking chlorinated water disturbs your healthy gut microbiome. You know, you're killing the good bacteria that you need uh, to have a healthy microbiome in your system. So what's next? Um, the very last one is cast iron versus Teflon. <laughs> so uh, we've got at least one podcast about that. I think it was like podcast number two. But um, uh, something that you could do at your home without having to buy land. And we haven't even, we, we've stuck strictly to uh, stuff that's just within your house. Like you don't have to have any land at all. And this is all for an apartment dweller. So the last item is the whole idea of um, uh, using cast iron. Uh, that, that Teflon stuff is nasty. Now, of course, a lot of people, I, I kind of even kind of feel a little bit weird saying it. How many people actually have uh, Teflon pans anymore? Because it seems like most of the population, their food comes from those little frozen bricks that they put in a microwave oven or from a restaurant or delivery. And so it's like, how many people even cook anymore? But if, you know, if you do use a pan, then uh, a cast iron pan is uh, uh, dramatically superior from a health perspective uh, compared to Teflon. His second best might be stainless steel. And there's a bunch of others that people prefer over cast iron for different reasons, like these stone composite things or different things. But I, I really don't know about those. But uh, stainless steel or um, cast iron. Please glass some. That's good, too. But I think, you know, very happy with cast iron. Yeah. Yeah. Baking in uh, glass Pyrex or, or, you know, yeah. And so uh, just learning to use that instead of, I mean, it takes a little, there's a little bit of knowledge that goes with making a cast iron really sing for you. And so just a little bit of, of knowledge in that space makes an enormous difference. Yeah. Well, and I think your mention of people microwaving everything is a good thing as well because so much of that, there's a plastic film over the top. And and even though that plastic film might not melt when you microwave, you're still probably getting, you know, plastic fumes in your food. That's got to be... Is, is the box wax or plastic? I mean, whether it's wax or plastic, it's still probably not very good. Right. Well, yeah, a lot of times those cardboard boxes are plasticized on the food side so it doesn't soak through, you know, and then the plastic film on top or whatever. You know, there's a whole variety of ways that these convenience foods are packaged that I think do impart toxins to your food. So that's... That's something to think about and maybe, you know, replace it with something here or there or, you know, decide to, you know, I was buying organic, um, lovely, like enchilada meals for my son to eat as a snack after school and the expense and the waste, the garbage of it was driving me crazy. So we cooked up our own one day and put them in reusable containers. And those were containers that could go into the microwave without plastic. I mean, you could take the plastic lid off and put a plate over it. 
and put it in the microwave. So we that's what we did. We made up a bunch of those to replace all of this frozen meal stuff that I was doing for my son years ago. That, the Fisher-Price house, the house that we're in now, came with a built-in microwave oven. And that was like one of the very first things that I did when getting there. Is we, we, we took out the microwave oven and uh, replaced it with just a, because it was over the stove, and just replaced it with a really good vent. And so the microwave oven is gone. And so that would mean for five years we have not used a microwave oven. I, I don't feel like we've suffered from that. Nope. Nope. Uh, it's it's just a different different way of operating. So, um, I think we covered way more thoroughly than uh, uh, Amy's questions and what she was anticipating. Yeah, there you go, Amy. There's <laughs> just type it up, put it in the magazine. <laughs> you want, maybe you won't have to write anything more for uh, three or four issues. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know, but uh, I hope that helps. I'll see if I can figure out how to turn this guy off here. I just hit the big red button again. Do you want to say the thing at the end, though? Oh, of course. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com, where we express gratitude for our Patreon people. <laughs> uh, and we talk about homesteading and permaculture all, all the, the time. time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.